Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we put the world of motoring and transport under the microscope. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including Future Mobility, who is calling the shots. How will the coronavirus affect transport? We talk to transport planner Brian Smith and we road test the VW Ute in a tough family situation. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's begin the program with the news. In years past, vehicles, bicycles and even scooters were the domain of traditional manufacturers. But what will be the overall impact of new technologies that are currently being developed? An article in The Conversation notes that over the past decade, almost $200 billion US dollars has been invested globally in mobility technology. And there is a lot of new kids on the block. Two years ago, there were 22 start-up companies valued at a billion dollars or more in travel and mobility. Now there are 44. There will be new ways of doing things, not just doing the same things more efficiently or comfortably. What we need now is not companies that only focus on short-term profits or government policies that are just about announcing new projects. We need to be able to think and adapt to a different-looking future. New technologies such as autonomous vehicles have been promoted as an all-or-nothing solution, but authorities are now recognising the need for halfway measures. Investigations have shown that a Tesla driver who died two years ago was playing a video game at the time of the crash, while the car was being driven semi-autonomously using Tesla's autopilot software. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety in the US has issued a set of research-based safety recommendations when using partially automated driving systems. The guidelines emphasise how to keep drivers focused on the road even as the vehicle does more of the work. They suggest systems that progressively give a visual reminder, an audio or physical alert, pulse braking or, if the driver continues not to respond, put the hazard lights on and bring the car to a stop. If a car company is bringing a new car onto the market, what are the features that are most likely to attract customers? For one Ford at least, it's not about power and performance. Ford Australia has a new SUV called the Puma to be on the Australian market in the second half of 2020. The headline on the press release proclaims new style, better connectivity and better safety. It takes some 13 paragraphs to find out what engine it has and then it's only mentioned because it's eco-friendly. The six-page press release does not mention words like handling. It's an evolving era and Ford calls this small vehicle an urban SUV. The focus is encouraging as all models have autonomous emergency braking, lane departure warning, lane keep assist, traffic sign recognition and driver impairment monitor. When it comes to gutsy power, a lot of focus has been on utes. 
but some luxury brands are making their SUVs both stylish and performance-oriented. Just over a year ago, Audi launched its Q8 SUV with an impressive outward style and great interior. Now they are about to get a hot version. The SQ8 is due in April. Powered by a 4-litre diesel V8 with twin turbochargers which are mated to an electric power compressor run by its 48-volt mild hybrid electric system to get maximum power across its full rev range. With 320 kilowatts and peak torque of 900 newton metres from 1,250 revs per minute, it will accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometres an hour in 4.8 seconds, and its fuel consumption is rated at 7.8 litres per 100 kilometres. It's priced at 165500 plus on-road costs. The increasing popularity of dual-cab utes has helped this type of vehicle become more family-friendly. The Volkswagen Amarok 580 dual-cab has heaps of power and rugged appeal. It seats five. But how well can it help in transport to and from a three-year-old's birthday party in the park? With two people in two picnic baskets, the back seat was a bit of a squeeze. The tray was great for the new push bike, but not for small items that can roll around. And balloons just flew out. The sides are high and a roll bar on top of the side panel made it impossible to reach everything. If you are getting a ute for the family, think about a liner and boxes in the tray and a tonneau cover. And that has been the news. I heard a very interesting talk the other day by Craig Carmody, the CEO of the Port of Newcastle. It is a private business that's now running that port and having to adapt to a changing world. He said, tragically, that in many ways Australia only addresses the changing future when there's a catastrophe. And, of course, the coronavirus is top of mind at the moment. I wonder what it'll do to transport not just in the short term, but what it might make us try, which we might keep for a longer, if not infinite period, or ongoing period. To talk about that, who better than to have Brian Smith, the technical director from WSP, who's an expert in transport and public transport as well. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. How are you? Very well, thank you. Let's just start with some of the immediate things. Uh, Public transport, people in close proximity. It must, uh, the coronavirus, be a way of uh, deterring that, do you think? Look, uh, public transport is a great way to catch disease, David. Um, You're sharing space, uh, you're in close proximity, it's generally unventilated. There's really no way of separating out people who are sick. Everyone has access to it, so you can't really easily tell if somebody's sick. And there's lots of things that you touch, from tickets, ticket machines, buttons, seats, handles. Yeah, public transport is a critical um, element in in distributing um, disease. In fact, um, uh, my daughters play uh, a, a sort of a pandemic game on the computer. And uh, the objective is to actually be a virus and attempt to spread it around the world. And uh, it's easier to spread when you have multiple ports where, and, and, and places where people interact. And so um, public transport gives you that. It gives you lots and lots of 
ways to for people to mix and to access different places and to spread disease. Your daughters play a game about spreading a pandemic around the world. <laughs> it's very popular. Was that developed by the Taliban? No, but they they tell me that uh, if you want to spread a, a virus, you should start in either America or China, and that I think it's either Greenland or Iceland is the most difficult, or that and Madagascar, the most difficult places to to conquer if you're the virus. <laughs> Temperature or more access, more um, limited number of ports and, and limited access. Do you think? That the coronavirus will then push us towards individual transport, back towards the car. That worries me. I think that's what you're you're aiming towards, David. Um, you know, it, it's uh, social isolation that uh, uh, that we're asked to to practice if we're at risk, and that really does mean individual transport. And and of course, cities can't function if everybody's travelling on individual transport because there's simply geometry. There's just not enough space. For, for everybody to have be surrounded by metres of, of uh, vehicle. It's much more efficient if we're all in together. So, yes, it is a bit of a risk, David. I think people are already avoiding avoiding using public transport. What, what I'm, I think is happening is more people have the ability to work from home and not travel or travel in a very limited way than to do their travel by car. Let's think about a trip to the Sydney CBD. It's not easy, David. It's costly. Uh, it's congested, and at, at the other end, you're going to be paying, um, you know, you, you really, uh, I guess, a gambling that you'll be able to find somewhere to, to store your car. So so someone who is deciding, look, you know, public transport is too risky for me is unlikely to be able to just jump in their car and say, so I'm going to drive to the city now, I'm going to pay $110 a day for parking if I can't find an early bird park, and I'm going to have all the stress of driving. So in, it's teleworking, I guess, that is probably the more desirable outcome. And I, do you think people are doing that, David? I, I, I suspect many more people are staying home and teleworking and we've got the, the wonderful NBN to help us to do that. Well, there's no doubt reduction in transport might be the thing. The interesting thing is that if you do drive to the city, you've got to take a ticket. If you're in a parking public parking space, you've got to, you know, there's a whole range of things that you might have to do that could spread it anyway. And yes. there's not a lot of capacity to drive into the city because not many people do it now and we still have congestion. But yes, yes I think reduction, and, and this is my point, that we've talked about telecommuting for a long time. So often we've, it's an all or nothing, which I think in the past has been absurd. It, it, you know, if, we were, if everyone did it one day a week, 20% reduction, that would be significant. Certainly not 20% of traffic, but journey to work. So, that, yes, that may be part of it. Uh, and, and do you think, Brian, then that we may start to develop systems to telecommute more effectively, better face-to-face -face, or video, sorry, video types of interthings that, that this will make us try? This I will think so. make us try and do this better than we've we've dabbled with it in the past. So, so my business has advised our or everyone to take their laptop home with them, and, and that's a that's a great start, right? You have a laptop, you have a, a portable piece of your business equipment, whereas previously a lot of us used to work at desktops that weren't portable. So we have that ability to to move ourselves around. And they've said, you know, take the take your laptop home just in case you might need to stay home. And and actually a lot of businesses, ours in particular, are set up very, very well to allow you to to do that, to sign on to a virtual private network, to to access all of your files from home. And many of us do it more from convenience 
um, you know, if you've got a sick kid or you've got a, a, a chore you've got to do or an errand to run, then the ability is there for you to be quite productive at home and uh, and do things. So I actually think perhaps not so much that we it'll force us to be able to do this better, though I think there are some some sort of uh, internet limitations in terms of NBN and things like that 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 might make it a little tricky, but we have the the wherewithal to do it. I suspect people might now find that it's an easier thing to do and start to do it more as of normal business. Um, it's interesting. You're, you're right, David. That it, it it's a disaster that causes people to to rethink. And I I'm thinking about um, the you know the earthquakes in the US and uh, San Francisco's Bay Area Rapid Transit system, which was not terribly well used, but after the big quakes in uh, San Francisco, it was pretty much the only mass transit system running. The bridges had, had been collapsed and damaged, and people began using it, and then many of them continued to use the, the BART um, even when the roads were rebuilt because they found a better way of doing things. I, I, I hope we find a better way of doing things teleworking. Uh, it's a legacy, really, one that we didn't do, we personally, in Sydney, out of the Olympics, but Olympics are an opportunity to make that sort of quantum leap mm. to, to, to try and bring it in. Big events, of course, are the ones that, among other things, are a great supporter of institutes and organisations which have broad and high ideals, yet they make some money out of big events, and it is that face-to-face. -face. Those big events, of course, are now being put on hold indefinitely or certainly for some time at a great rate. Yes. That whole notion, let alone tourism or, or whatever that might mean, that is really going to af affect the notion of uh, transport. We've talked a lot about journey to work, yet there are so many other reasons why we get around. Indeed. Um, I imagine this is going to be difficult for public transport authorities, difficult for rideshare and taxi companies. Uh, events, obviously, are being um, uh, sort of shared at an alarming rate. Interesting to see that the F Victoria is going ahead with the Formula One, despite, it seems, even the Formula One people saying they'd rather not do it. But, yes, uh, I worry about the social the social element that, uh, you know, gatherings are bad. And But, look, I think it will pass. I think in a year or so uh, things will start to head back to normal for the survivors. One thing I want to touch on is is that culturally we we tend not to protect other people from diseases that we have on public transport. So I've travelled a lot in Southeast Asia and worked there and, and you regularly see people with face masks who have a, a sickness. They, they've got a cold and they're, they're putting a mask on to let their fellow people know that they have a cold and also to try and cut down the transmission of that. I'm not seeing masks on our public transport network at all. David, are you? Oh, I've caught a bit. I certainly found that there are, no, perhaps it's more obvious because it's an exception rather than a rule, but certainly there are some people who are doing it. It's interesting that perhaps that's not the big issue, it's washing hands and yes. those whole range of things that really, as a legacy, we might end up getting. <laughs> yes. It becomes much more of a, rather than a, a thing you did because your parents told you to do it as to it's something you do because there is a, a, a clear and obvious con consequence. Consequence of not doing it. 
and some ways I think that may well be the reflection for transport as well, that we need to say, hang on, do I need to do this? How do I do that? What's the best way to do it? Can I delay it half an hour or whatever? David, I saw more people with masks during the bushfires in Sydney when they were protecting their own health than I've seen um, during this this event. And interestingly, uh, uh, you mentioned um, washing your hands. I, I saw a statistic that suggested that perhaps before this, 40% of men didn't wash their hands after going to the toilet and that uh, now there's uh, a lot more interest in doing that. The point being is that I think that we don't just do it by notions of shock jock shouting things or whatever that we have to seriously think about what we do why we do it and how we do it which we have to do anyway because transport is changing ryan we'll come back and have a talk with a little bit more lighter subjects in the near future thank you thank you david this is overdrive across australia We know utes have taken over the rugged image, but are they also getting a performance characteristic about them? I asked our good friend Rob Fraser. Hey, Rob, the new Amarok, the ute, it actually goes rather well. It's not just a plodding ute. Is there a big push for power? Look, I think so. And as you know, I'm always an advocate of having more power. You can never have too much. But the Amarok 580 range, as opposed to their normal four-cylinder range, that's certainly got some oomph about it. The normal one has about 165 kilowatts and 550 newton metres. The kilowatts can be a bit of overboost and added up a bit too. The, the 580, as the name suggests, has 580 newton metres and 190 kilowatts or 200 if on overboost. So that's really pushing up from a V6 diesel engine. Look, it is. And the beauty about that is that that torque comes in nice and low. So it makes the driving really smooth and, and you can feel that power behind you when you take off. Through an eight-speed gearbox, the power comes in at two and a half to four and a half thousand, which is more towards the top end of a diesel. But as you say, the torque comes in at one thousand five hundred up to two and a half thousand for peak torque. That's really in the range. And as I say, with an eight-speed gearbox, that's even the range as you're pretty well touring down the motorway. Oh, absolutely. And and the good thing is the Amarok is probably one of the two best riding utes on road for ride and handling so it actually can handle that power really well good off-road not too bad not too bad Hmm. it's got a constant four motion all-wheel drive system so uh, it's certainly made for that now we often talk about these dual cab utes as being a family car i put it to the ultimate family test I attended a three-year-old's birthday party. (laughs) Brave man. Yes. I didn't have to escape to it and put the radio on or or listen to that, so I survived the party, let me say that. But uh, firstly, if you have five seats, that's fine. We had four people in the car, including me, the driver. But, of course, we put a couple of baskets in there, and that immediately took up the room in the second row between the two passengers. And so putting anything else meant putting it in the tray, which is really not well suited to small items that could roll around. Yeah, look, I think a lot of people that use these dual cab utes on a regular basis, they often have some sort of a box or something in the back with a lid on it that'll hold that type of stuff. And 
you know, it's tied down so that, you know, the stuff doesn't roll around everywhere. And the Amarok 2 is not the biggest ute in the back seat. It's it's actually not amongst the biggest, and there's, it gets a bit tight there. Yes, it is. And it doesn't have any airbags to the rear seats either. No, no, which is there's – there's a couple of little things about it. I mean, you can't have a perfect ute, but I think it's, it's a little bit smaller than a lot of the other dual-cab utes of the same size. Hmm. And I think if you actually want more room in the back, you've got to go up to like a Ram 1500 dual-cab or something like that. That's getting big. That's the big pickup type American yes. system, isn't it? Yeah. The thing about the rear thing was absolutely fantastic for a three-year-old's birthday party because he got given a little bike, and so I got to take that back to the home. You know, we're at a park, and he got given the bike. So, you know, that was great for putting in the trailer, but the balloons weren't. <laughs> and you don't want them inside the cabin either because they get a bit, <laughs> bit annoying. Well, well, Alan might, but the... <laughs> Yes. We can measure how big it is by how many balloons we can put in there. Yes, indeed. But that's where you need a tornado, a cover over the back if you were taking things like balloons, but, of course, also to keep things dry as well. So if you are going to use it as a family car, it's something that you can really set up a little bit, isn't it, and make sure you've got the right equipment, maybe even having a tub liner that might be able to stop things rattling around a little? Tub liners are excellent, and, you know, as long as you can still tie down. They also stop things from getting scratched as well. And, you know, a ute such as the Toyota Hilux Rogue, it's it's lined with carpet in the back as well, and it's got a hard lid on the top, hmm. which has its benefits. But almost in everything with a ute, they do so many things good, but there's a compromise with everything. So if you've got a soft tono cover then that's great because it covers things up, but it doesn't actually give you security. If you've got a hard cover, that's excellent because you can lock it, but it also limits what you can actually put in there because you, know, you, you can't sort of roll it back. I'll say one thing about modern utes is that the ute part has a very high side. Now, we had this upmarket 580 Amarok, and so it had a roll bar type device, which not only sort of looped over the back just behind the rear windscreen, but it, it ran parallel down the side of the car and so made it even taller to lean over and get in. We threw the bike in, but then to get it out, we had to drop the tailgate and climb over that because to reach over the side was too high. Oh, absolutely. And as you know, I'm 190 centimetres tall, so I'm, I'm reasonably tall. And even for me to have something in that front in the middle, you can't reach it. You look at a Holden ute, which is a bit more like a sports car, but it's uh, one that it's much easier to be able to access the back section. But here we have the utes now. They really have taken over that rough Australian condition type image, haven't they? What maybe used to be the Holden ute, although they then became a two-door sports car in many ways. And rest in peace, I lament the passing of those. But then again, the only real rough and tough one was like the old cowcockies ute with a huge bull bar, seven CB radio antennas, and about five kangaroo spotlights. (laughs) But a colleague of mine also added, and of course a sticker on the back window saying Bundy Rum. Yeah, or Canago Pub. (laughs) I actually drove past there one day and it was like, this is a long way out of nowhere. 
<laughs> Not much there. It's a wonderful image, but perhaps it's lacking a sort of uh, modern-day financial reality, is it? I think so, yeah, but it's exceptionally popular, particularly with the, the Ute Muster Brigade. Yes. Look, there's no question that the Big Bull Bar, etc., is most at home at the Denny Ute Festival. There's uh, no, no question of that at all, yet in some ways it's a bit of an old image. Uh, see, the Ute was rough and tough, but that tended to be associated with the extreme, like the pig shooter. Nothing personal there, Rob. But yes. <laughs> now it's that sort of out-and-about adventure that happens to include the family as a possibility. But even amongst the Utes, as we talked about before, there are horses for courses, and, and the 580 Amarok really is designed as a, a more on-road, more recreational-type vehicle where they'll tow a Sea-Doo or a light camper trailer or something like that. Hmm. And it'll spend most of its time driving around the city or on the freeways, and it's ideally suited to that. The interior of rather a small infotainment screen, a colleague of mine that had a number of Volkswagen Golfs looked inside and said, ah, that's familiar, yes. So it, which is understandable. You might as well use it that way. But nonetheless, I think the 580 newton metres of torque was class-leading and might still be very close, if not at the top. In that segment, absolutely, yes, hmm. it is. I've got to say, off the line... It rears its head like a bronco, you know. It gets up and goes. We did a launch of the 580 Ultimate about 12 months ago or something, and there was a hill climb section that we did that was closed off and obviously all the safety features and everything there. But it just, you were sort of driving up this hill in this ute and you were thinking to yourself, this can't be a ute. It is handling so well. It's just, it just kept powering away up the hill. It was just a lot of fun to drive. Up the hill meant nothing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that's that deep talk that it just, the reserves of talk that it just calls on. And I think most of it comes in, you're up around 75, 80% of the talk at around 2,000 revs. Comes in early and then peaks very early. So you're always on song, as they say. Yeah. And the eight-speed gearbox means that, automatic means that you've got a, a good range of selection so that you're keeping in a good range both for economy but also for power when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned earlier, you know, like the small screen. One day I think a manufacturer is going to come along and build a ute from a perspective of an SUV first mm. and then the ute second. So it'll have all the blings and the bells and whistles inside and the space. And then, yeah, the fact that it is a ute has that practicality is almost like a secondary thing. And surprisingly enough, the closest that comes to that at the moment is the Sangyong Musso. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Rob Fraser, Jordan Trembath and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.